Welcome to the Think Like a CFO podcast, where we dig into not only what it takes to start a business, but to keep your business thriving for years to come using my signature CFO money method framework. I'm your host, Melissa Houston, and I am a CPA and business financial coach. I have over 20 years of experience in business, and it is my passion to share my knowledge of business finance and personal finance with other women. You can also follow me with my column at Forbes.com or my column with Entrepreneur.com. My guest today, Rebecca Minkoff, is an industry leader in accessible luxury handbags, accessories, footwear, and apparel. Rebecca Minkoff's modern bohemian designs are inspired by strong, confident, and powerful women who embody the effortless, free-spirited lifestyle. After developing an affinity for designs while in the costume department in high school, Rebecca moved to New York City at age of 18 to pursue her dream of becoming a fashion designer. In 2001, Rebecca designed a version of the I Love New York t-shirt as part of a five-piece capsule collection, which appeared on The Tonight Show and became an overnight sensation. In 2005, Rebecca designed her first handbag, which she dubbed the Morning After Bag, also known as the MAB. This iconic bag ignited Rebecca's career as a handbag designer and inspired the brand expansion into a lifestyle brand in the years to come. Rebecca's success was further accelerated by the support of her brother, the company's CEO and co-founder, Uri Minkoff, who helped usher in and pioneer the company's industry-leading innovations with technology and fashion. Welcome, Rebecca Minkoff. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Rebecca. I am so happy to welcome you to the Think Like a CFO podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. How are you? I'm healthy and alive, so I'm going to take that as a win. Absolutely. I mean, these are absolutely crazy times. So yeah, your health is definitely the most important thing. I want to jump into the podcast right now and talk about you as a person and your brand. So you're basically, as far as I'm concerned, a household name. But for people who don't recognize your name, would you like to elaborate on what you do? Sure. So my name is Rebecca Minkoff. I started a lifestyle and accessories brand really back in 2005. I say really because that's when it became official. It's when I had a tax ID. Prior to that, it was a bunch of me running around like a chicken, you know, making apparel and selling it to small boutiques around New York City. And it was just bags. And then we decided to expand that into truly a full offering of clothing, shoes, belts, scarves, you name it, we probably make it. Fragrance. So yeah, so we've been around for 16 years and really want to cater to women who value the idea that something that they want for their everyday life shouldn't be something that they have to mortgage their house for or go into debt and make really high quality things that that really showcase and show off a woman rather than a plaque showing off a bag. Your stuff is absolutely gorgeous. Now, I live in Canada. I don't know if you knew that. And so 
Finding your stuff is really, really hard to get into stock. The, the Hudson's Bay Company, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They carry your items, but I can't wait for my next trip to New York City because I'm going to stock up on a whole bunch of stuff, especially since I was researching. I'm like, oh my God, look at that bag and look at that belt and everything's so gorgeous. So, but for people who know you, I mean, it seems like you would be an overnight success. Because like I said earlier, your household name, everybody knows you, they know you're super successful. But I was reading an article that was talking about how, you know, it was really tough for you at the beginning and how you started out. Do you want to share a little bit about that story? Yeah, I think when people hear of a name, they automatically assume overnight success when we've been doing this for 16 years officially, 21 years unofficially. And so I think that, you know, I had an initial spark, whether it was the I Love New York shirt that was on TV or the morning after bag, which was, you know, on Daily Candy and in the arms of tons of celebrities at the time. But I think that those leg ups were incredibly important and imperative to my success. But fundraising or raising money from a VC wasn't something that businesses did then, especially in the fashion space. My brother, who was my business partner, had to mortgage his house because we couldn't get a loan from a bank. You know, he maxed out his personal credit card. We had a credit line that we leaned on that belonged to a separate company that my parents weren't using. So we really had to sort of bootstrap it for many years. And it wasn't until 2012 that we decided to do a small raise with a private equity firm. But, you know, as hard as it was, I always tell people that are starting out, please don't rush into raising money because you are selling a huge piece of your pie for no more control. And you're dealing with people who want an exit in seven years. And sometimes businesses aren't ready for an exit in seven years. And sometimes the decisions that you have to make to have an exit in seven years actually isn't the most healthy thing to do. So as hard as it was living penny to penny, I think that it was important because it forced us to figure out a business model that worked. And it forced us to really make sure that we had product market fit. And that mm-hmm. I think is key before any before trying to raise any type of funds. And I love how you emphasize that because it's true. People often don't realize that when you do sign up with venture capitalists, you are losing control of your business. And that has some, you know, relatively huge consequences depending on the situation. So it's great that you're advising people about that. And it's also fantastic that your brother, what a nice brother to, he was your partner. Is he still your partner? Yes. He's still my partner. He's the CEO. I think he knows a good investment when he sees one. And so I think he, <laughs> he could quickly see that if he invested in this thing and built it up, that hopefully one day when we feel like if we want to sell, if we decide that's what we want to do, that he will have made a good investment. Yeah, absolutely. That's That can be certain. I know that you also have female founder collectives. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I really... I launched the Female Founder Collective really out of a state of frustration. You know, I was speaking on a lot of panels. Women were getting asked, what's it like to be a female founder? Like we were polar bears. Women were talking in in their own echo chamber about lack of pay equity, lack of roles for women. But I wasn't seeing any of that chatter and all that frustration channel into change. And I also felt very lonely as a female founder. Yes, I have great friends, but I can't talk to them about a logistics shipment that isn't arriving or a bridge loan we might need or how to make more margin. And so I really thought if I could create a community of female founded businesses that could support each other, 
give each other our black books, educate women because you know, I started my business with a passion. I had no education in how to run a business. So I know that there are 12 more million women out there who might be in the same boat. And so how do we provide an education platform, a community platform, and a place where these women can sort of share their version of what they're going through in the hopes of helping other women? So launched it in 2018, brought on my co-founder, Allison Wyatt, at the end of 2018, and we've scaled it to be just over 10,000 female founders. We've done some incredible events, a ton of incredible events, I should say, that really are teaching women. It's not about a woman being on a panel talking about her experience. It's education and making sure that these women have the tools to succeed. I love that. My background being a CPA, and basically I've produced this podcast in my business to help women entrepreneurs tackle their financials and understand their financial reports and really get in there. They don't have to do the accounting, but being financially informed is my goal. Now, by any chance, are you on top of your finances in that sense? I am and I'm not. I feel the last area that I have yet to conquer is feeling really smart about investing in stocks. I feel like the stock market is something to me that still feels incredibly like scary. And how does this work again? And I just started playing around with it. I did a small amount of money on Robinhood. I'm doing my own things. I'm playing with it. But I do feel like I have as far as the rest of my life sorted out. Do you find that as you get to know a a lot of other women entrepreneurs that in my opinion, it seems to be a space where it's more comfortable to talk about sales and marketing and inventory issues and whatever. But when it comes to talking about business finances, it's like you can make the room go quiet. (laughs) Nobody wants to talk about that. Yes. It's funny you raised this point because I interviewed a woman on my podcast that said, you know, if women talked about stocks and money the way we talk about sex and children, how much further along would we be? Let me add to the list Botox and filler. We talk about that more than what are you investing in? What was a good deal? How much are you making? When was the last time you asked for a raise? Imagine if those were the conversations we were having. And I think we have to destigmatize that. You shouldn't ask someone what they're making or you shouldn't ask someone what they have in savings because it might be invasive when you're, when you're more invasive talking about what you did last night with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree for sure. And I really aim to get that conversation going with women as well, especially in the entrepreneurial space, because, you know, it's so important to know how much money, like how much profit you're making in your business. And through the years of working, I have seen so many businesses making multiple six, seven, eight figure businesses, but they're not pulling in the the profit that they need to be. So that can be a danger sign as well. It's hugely dangerous. And just to share a story, when, you know, when we first started, it was all about growth and not profitability. That was what every single investment banker told us. It was what everyone said, prime the business, grow, grow, grow. Who cares about a profit? We'll figure that out later. And then the investment community sort of thought process changed and was like, oh no, yes, we want you to grow. Doesn't have to be 20, 30% a year, but we want you to be profitable. And and so I think people need to build profitability into their business models and not hope that some great white beacon of cash is going to come your way and figure it out for you. Exactly. And then with the profit, you can always reinvest into your business so you can grow it. And yeah, that's key for growth for sure. Now, 
I'm curious to know, like with Female Founder Collective and the current economic recession and the health crisis that we're in right now, I mean, the media has labeled this as the she session, where women have been largely affected with job losses over their their male counterparts. Now, are you seeing an increase in your membership? Or do you see an increase in women branching out and deciding to go into business for themselves? Yeah, so I think you've seen the media focus on all of the the loss of women in the workforce. But I think what people are not talking about is the fact that Women are starting businesses at a rapid rate. I don't have the, the, the article to hand, but I read somewhere that almost 2,000 businesses a day, women-owned businesses a day are starting right now. You can look at the million that are leaving and the 2,000 that are starting. And most of these companies aren't ever going to be more than one to two employees, solo entrepreneurs. But to me, it is a huge opportunity. Women are saying, enough of this, enough banging my head against a wall. I'm going to launch my own thing. And I think that what we're doing at the Female Founder Collective or with what Capital One is doing with Small Unites is really going to support these small businesses in a huge way because we all need that parachute. We all need that underpinning of support, whether it's donations, whether it's education or resources or people sharing businesses, right? I think those are all important things that can help these small businesses thrive. Absolutely. So you mentioned that Capital One, and I'm sorry, what was the other one? I mentioned Capital One. So there's there's an incredible coalition of businesses that have come together to support small businesses. Capital One, GoFundMe, the National Urban League, and Ogilvy have come together to really connect consumers to businesses, also providing some financial support, some donations, marketing advice. All of these big companies have taken small businesses as the backbone of America under their wings. So I think for any small business, man or women, can take advantage of those opportunities. That's a great opportunity, especially during the current economic conditions. If people are interested in learning more about that, where would they go to find that? You can actually head over to smallunites.org. They have all the resources and they have an incredible section, again, on support for small businesses. And if you're a consumer and you want to get involved, you can donate, you can share your favorite local small business. So for entrepreneurs who are starting their own business, maybe possibly even during this financial crisis, what type of advice would you give to them? I think the type of advice that I would give to them is first and foremost with the pandemic, if you just survive, consider that a win. Don't go expecting to have your sales go through the roof unless you're in a COVID supply business, hand sanitizer, masks, gloves, or COVID-adjacent businesses, workouts, gear, or, or things that people have really increased during the pandemic. If you just get by, that's great. Just get by, just survive, because we're going to come out of this. My hope is going to be, you know, it's the roaring 20s, and you'll be in high demand if you've stayed around. So I think that's for the COVID. COVID specific. I think outside of COVID, somewhere along the line, we've been marketed to that this journey is going to be easy. It's not going to be without challenges that, you know, we're just going to coast our way to success. And I have yet to meet any founder, man or woman, who hasn't encountered those moments where you're like, you can't make this bleep up, right? And it happens every week and people can go, oh, global fashion designer must be so easy. This is harder now than it was when I just started. So I think stop thinking this will be easy. Stop thinking that you're not going to encounter hardships and just know that we have to be resilient. We have to get back up every time this happens. And rather than go into this 
I'm a loser. Why did I mess up? I'll never make it. And say, what did I do wrong? What can I learn from it? And, and how do I make change and keep moving forward? I love that. Now, when you went through the 2008 recession, was that difficult as well? So it was and it wasn't. We sat down with, I think it was the buyers from either Saks Fifth Avenue or Bloomingdale's to cheers our year in the business. And they literally said, if you have a five, as in 595, which was the original price of my bags, in front of any of your product, when we go to see you in January, we won't be able to carry you anymore. Or we'll, or we'll carry you, but it'll be a lot smaller of an assortment. And they were telling this to all the contemporary designers that they worked with. And none of the other designers listened. They said, sorry, this is what our prices are. And they're all gone. I can name on my, you know, on one hand, those companies that are no longer around because the recession hit. We lowered our prices by over 50%. We tossed out the idea of margin. We just said, goodbye. We'll see you in a few years. Um, (laughs) And we had to do that as a business because our customers' income was drastically hit and was not ever going to recover. And so we watched for three months the sales reports. I got my first gray hair then. Nothing (laughs) happened. The buying habits didn't change. And I was like, what did we just do? We just tossed out our entire profitability for some mystical hope that this customer is going to buy our bags during the recession. And then it hit three months later, and it hit big. And over the next three years, we grew 548% because she... She was grateful. We listened. We were there for her. And we gave her something that she could buy a bag, but not go into debt or buy a bag and eat dinner or buy a bag and pay her rent. And so Mm -hmm. she really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And your stuff is so beautiful, like I said earlier. Now, I heard that you have written a book as well. Yes. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So I guess the pandemic is as good a time to write a book as ever. Basically wanted to be able to not only share my story, but also share all the rules we had to break. If, if you close your eyes and you know the fashion industry, it really was like the devil wears Prada. I didn't come from some family who knew the editor-in-chief of the most powerful magazine and got an easy in. I was totally an outsider. And so our success and our rise was through breaking all these rules. So the book is really about the new rules for unlocking creativity, courage, success, and how you can take those rules, even if you're not in fashion, and apply them to your business and hopefully succeed. And I love the title. Yeah. Fearless. I think me and Taylor Swift must have been on the same band. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, this will help me sell a lot of books. But I wanted to call it fearless because it doesn't mean I never have fear. It means that even though I have it, I do it anyways. Or as someone aptly pointed out to me, fear less. We have so many things that we let stop us in our lives. And I think that it's important that we still have to pursue them even though it's scary. And so I think my goal with this is that people just have less fear. I love how you talk because I'm relatively new to the entrepreneurial world. And I have all the feels where it's like you were mentioning earlier, don't beat yourself up. You're not a failure because this didn't work. Or you're talking about being fearless, feel the fear and do it anyways, and stuff like that. And it's just it resonates with me so much because it's so real. And that's what me and, and my entrepreneurial friends are feeling. And to hear it from someone as a, as successful as you, it just makes it feel so much more just normalized and like, yeah, okay, like, we all have these struggles. This is fantastic. This is so relatable. Yes, we all do. And I think 
It's truly important to take that to heart. You see women, men on the cover of magazines. You see the billionaire list that's you know, just released. And it can seem like you're alone and you're a loser and you suck. But there are more... <laughs> but there, <laughs> There are more small businesses in America that are the backbone of this, and there are fewer who achieve those highs, and that's great. But we all don't need to be that. That doesn't determine success and self-worth. That's great. Is your book available right now for pre-order? It is available for pre-order. I'm happy you asked because especially with the pandemic right now, bookstores are not really investing in huge quantities of books. So any pre-order helps. You can get it on Amazon or Books a Million and you get you get some good, some good goodies if you pre-order now. Oh, nice. Good. Okay. I will leave the link for that in the show notes for the listeners as well. It's just been so great speaking with you. And I just love how absolutely down to earth and real you are. I'm wondering though, now that you've achieved such a high level of success, do you still have fear? about being an entrepreneur? I will say this. We had a situation, which I talk about in the book, about five years ago, where we thought that was it. The business was going to be done over. And because of some certain agreements we had with the bank, they'd be able to also take my house as part of the, if we if we had gone down a bad road, they could take anything that I had sort of signed away to them as collateral. And I think when you look at no business, no income, no place to live, you really go to a place where I I say, get cozy with that, really explore it, don't run from it. And I looked deep down and I said, you know what? They can't take my kids and they can't take my husband. And I know from building a business, I will build something else and I will figure it out. And I think any entrepreneur who's built their business with their bare hands, scrappy, knows that they can go back to that original having nothing, starting from nothing, nothing to lose. Once I stared that in the face, my ability to be comfortable with failing just became like, okay, good. Still got my kids and my husband. Yeah. Still have these hands that can crawl my way to the top of something again. And so for me, I don't have fears around business. I have fears about the state of the world. I have fears about divisive politics, (laughs) but I don't necessarily have fears about business because i I went to such a place where I said, what is the worst that can happen? And can I survive that? Yes. And I think we all need to think that way because we get to this point of seriousness where we, where we stop forgetting that this is a game, right? There's two, there's opponents, there's people on the team and not. And if we can view this as a game versus this is the only thing I have without this, I have nothing. I'll be nothing. You can create again. And we all can, we all are capable. I love that because it's so true. And and there are stories of women who have built empires and lost it all and then rebuilt. So it is inspiring. And it is good to know that your successes and failures don't define you. And that's not really what is important in life. You know, money can always be replaced, but you're absolutely right. It's your family that and the health that you have to cherish every day. So I have absolutely loved speaking with you today. This has been fantastic. If there's one thing that you want listeners to take away from this conversation today, what would that be? I think that I would like people to take away the idea. Well, I have a few. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to stop looking at, at failure in the way that it becomes a moment where you invalidate yourself, what you've done, what you've created. And I think that you need to look at it as, 
how do tech companies look at failure? They're always iterating. They're always optimizing. They're always fixing bugs. And you're always getting an update on your iPhone. That's because something failed. So I think that if you can shift your mindset to there's a failure funnel, that didn't work. Next, what do I need to do to fix it? Or how can I optimize? I think we need to say, okay, I need to optimize, right? I'm not a failure. I need to optimize. And I think if you can get into that mindset, you'll be more productive, you'll be quicker to react, and you'll be more resilient. And so I think that all small businesses should be thinking that way and to just stay as creative as you can, especially right now, you know, think outside the box. It doesn't take money to survive. We certainly didn't have it and we're still here. Just to put it in perspective, 70% of our business evaporated about a year ago and we're still here. So it was grit, it was courage, it was vulnerability, it was fearlessness, it was our team. And so you can, you can come out of this and we can all do better. I love your honesty and I so appreciate that. And I know my listeners will love hearing that as well because you're keeping it real. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I feel like if I can... I don't know if you get uncouth in this podcast, but the big contest doesn't help anybody. Yeah. (laughs) Totally agree. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Think Like a CFO podcast with Melissa Houston, CPA. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. Until next time, I'm Melissa Houston. And remember, nobody will ever care about your business as much as you do. So never give your financial power away.